Welcome to the latest edition of the NPM podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. The podcast comes to you as we've hit a critical point in the solar uh, manufacturing supply chain. The ongoing tariff investigation by the Department of Commerce has put the entire supply chain at risk uh, that was already being affected by an ongoing supply chain crisis. Some of the bigger developers uh, in recent days have announced advanced orders of solar modules from the likes of First Solar, while genuine concern exists on how uh, smaller to mid-market developers might be able to deliver projects in the near term uh, with this investigation ongoing. Uh, while Greg Dixon, CEO and co-founder of Voltus, a publicly listed uh, distributed energy resource software technology platform, may not have all the answers. He certainly has an interesting perspective on this. Uh, Greg, welcome to the program today. Thank you, John. Really appreciate you having us. Great. So before we get into some of these larger looming issues, um, why don't you just get into the mechanics of how Voltus works, um, who are its chief customers, and importantly, how you interact with solar, wind, and storage developers on a regular basis? Sure. So Voltus is to electricity what Airbnb is to real estate. Uh, as I think we've all come to appreciate, Airbnb, through its software platform, connects hosts and visitors in a two-sided market to make better use of underutilized apartments uh, and homes while providing extra cash, the side gig cash for those hosts and, and more choice for visitors. Similarly, with distributed energy resources or DERs and electricity markets, Voltus's software platform orchestrates and monetizes these underutilized DERs for the owners of those DERs that are in the ground today while delivering greatly needed uh, electricity supply to electricity markets seeking less expensive, more reliable and cleaner power through the aggregation of these DERs. And these DERs form virtual power plants that act like and are valued the same as traditional central power stations when delivering the same services. So our customers are on one side of that market, the system operators, the ISOs and the RTOs and utilities, and on the other side of the market, the owners of these DERs, the two segments of that market that we serve are the large commercial and industrial uh, electricity consumer, as well as these new DER technology partners that are bringing DERs to market at scales we've never seen before. So think Google Nest smart thermostats or electric vehicles that would plug into our platform to deliver grid services and be paid to do so. The way that our platform interacts with renewable power and energy storage is dependent on the particular resource. Most solar and, and, and wind, the vast majority, is a passive resource. So those resources aren't necessarily being controlled, although there are some innovations in that area. As it relates to energy storage, that is one component of distributed energy resources, which we call the four horsemen of DERs, energy storage, demand response, distributed generation, and energy efficiency. We can use these DERs as a backstop and balancing resource for wind and solar because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow to fill valleys and to clip peaks to make those resources uh, more valuable. 
Great. And um, just in terms of um, energy storage, um, can you just talk about how you're working with uh, developers of those systems? Is it more, you're, you're contracting with them, that's how it works? Or can you work, walk us through the model a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, these, these uh, DERs, which are behind electricity meters, so we're talking about behind the meter energy storage in this, in this case, Developer, the, the developers of those storage projects aren't necessarily uh, wholesale power market experts. And so often a developer will have lots of these energy storage units in lots of the different wholesale power markets. And they don't want to develop the operating system, if you will, of connecting those resources to wholesale power markets that will pay for those, pay for the services offered by those energy storage units. And so we've developed a software platform that maximizes the dollars that those energy storage units can make participating in wholesale power markets. And so the business model works such that we bring an aggregation of energy storage units into the wholesale power market. Voltus is paid by those system operators, the ISOs and RTOs for the services that we deliver. And we share a portion of that value with the developer of the energy storage unit. Okay. So um, shifting gears to um, the uh, the current supply chain crisis. So, you know, what, what we've been hearing from the market is that, you know, if, if you're building a project in 2022, um, sorry, can we pause for a second? I'll talk about the state of the telemarketing world on, in another separate four-hour podcast. That'll be four hours, which I'll just complain. Um, and we'll strike that from the record. Anyway, I can, I can, I can join on that too. Yeah, because they're now like creating it where there's local numbers now versus like yeah. 1-800 or like, I don't know, okay. 968 random. It's now 732, my local area code. So I'm like, right. oh, who is this? Same guy. Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so um, we'll, we'll record at this point. So um, with the current uh, ongoing tariff investigation by the Department of Commerce combined with the supply chain crisis that was already here, um, the overall feeling is, is that 2022, if projects are being built, projects are being built, the solar modules have already been ordered. Um, there may have been delays associated with the supply chain crisis, but it won't be affected by the tariff. Um, I think as we move forward into the later stages of 2022 um, and 2023 in particular, that becomes really the focus uh, as um, developers have to choose to go NTP or a delay given what's currently going on. I mean, project finance deals are struck, tax equity deals are struck. Uh, and obviously that also leads to a secondary concern about whether the finance is going to be there. So these are all the factors that, that sort of go into the mind of a developer at this point. But Greg, just from your perspective, um, how do you kind of view the, the crisis in general uh, and how does it really impact um, your business either way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, anyone's guess where this turns out, but um, how it affects our business is is interesting. You know, I think the the solar industry is 
claiming something like the tariff may impact 16 gigawatts of, of solar yeah. uh, development annually. Um, you know, it's, it is important to keep in mind that DERs, as I mentioned, are, are comprised of demand response, distributed generation, energy efficiency, and energy storage. And it's the energy storage component of DERs that would be impacted because more and more storage is being attached to solar. And so if anything, we see that energy storage would see higher demand because of uh, the potential threat of this tariff because it improves the economics of solar, which is the entire reason why it gets attached to solar. Mm -hmm. So if anything, what we would see is that uh, we would see a higher attach rate for these DERs in the face of higher tariffs to improve economics. Mm -hmm. Um, Excellent point. Uh, how does it affect pricing for DER, would you say? Well, you know, we we can spend a week talking about pricing in these in these markets. DERs are incredibly diverse resources, right? You know, we're talking about electric vehicles, stationary battery storage, um, HVAC-based demand response, Wi-Fi thermostats, data center backup generation. Mm-hmm. It's it's very hard to state a, a price per se or the effect of uh, on price for DERs. However, all DERs have to compete in electricity markets alongside traditional central power stations. So the price of DERs is simply a function of how those markets procure and meet resource adequacy requirements. So it's in this context that it's important to remember that DERs are the least expensive. They're the most reliable. They're the cleanest resource that system operators and utilities can procure today. And the good news is that DERs are lying fallow at immense scale that can be connected to the grid very quickly to address today's grid challenges, which is an important component of our business model to um, remind your listeners of. What we do, kind of like Airbnb, is we're making use of resources that are in the ground today to meet these grid challenges. So where prices rise, DERs become even more competitive and a better choice for grids to solve challenges. Great. Um, so let's pause for a second because um, I want to kind of just shift a couple of parts of the podcast. I'd like to talk about data centers next and, and crypto in um, you know, that same sentence. It's kind of the newer clientele. Um, and I'm sure it's something you're well-versed in at this point. Um, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, also, do you guys, uh, do any work with universities? I was just curious if that's come up at all. Absolutely. 40, 40 different industries we serve and, and higher ed is certainly one of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to ask about that as well, uh, just because we've, um, it's something we cover in, in a way. It's just like, it's like if we're going to cover utility issuing an RFP, which is what we do, that's one of our bread and butter things that we cover. Um, like I look at the university, given their, you know, people that are there 10 months out of the year or eight months out of the year is no, no different than a utility, you know, looking for to greenify their campus versus, you know, creating renewable resources for that utility for their ratepayer. I mean, I, I know it works differently, but we do cover that from that sense, um, you know, whether it be a P3 as one example, or um, like just a university procuring for solar arrays, you know, it goes from end to yep. end there. So that's how I was yep. thinking about it. Okay, so I'll get to data centers and crypto first, and then we'll talk about universities. 
Um, and then um, I'd like to uh, conclude then with um, the grid and uh, what needs to be done there. So those three areas. Okay, great. great. Okay, so we're going to re-record. So, um, Greg, just talking about uh, customers for uh, DERs, um, we certainly see that a few trends. Number one, there's a rising amount of data center new builds going on in this country. And, you know, rising, you could say, well, it's been going on for a while, but, you know, if anything, what's happened in the past few years has been transformative for that industry. A large degree of institutional capital has funneled into data center owners. Um, a couple of big tech privates executed in the past 24 months with QTS and uh, Cyrus One. Uh, and, you know, the need to grow outside of um, the traditional buckets in the U.S., which has been Virginia and um, in and around Texas, we're seeing data center growth elsewhere. Just uh, voluminous amounts of new uh, people that want to tap uh, renewable resources. I mean, they're, they're not tapping natural gas or tapping renewable. They've made no uh, bones about it. So um, may, if you can maybe talk to me about um, Baltus's interaction with these data center owners and sort of how it works. And also if you get at in crypto, crypto mining, which you've done as well, and that's been public out for Voltus. So data centers and crypto mines are great DER resources. They're very different in the sense that when we talk about traditional data centers, we're talking about tier one mission data centers that typically have um, backup power and need to deliver services uh, on a five nines basis, right? And so they often have flywheel-based storage or uh, backup generation or now, you know, lithium-ion battery-based backup. And those resources lie fallow 99.9% of the year. And they're very high-quality resources for the purpose of providing backup power in the event that there is a power outage. So in that regard, those resources can be connected to the wholesale power market to deliver incredibly valuable grid services and to deliver dollars um, back into the pockets of data centers. So traditionally speaking, data centers have long been a great segment of the market to deliver uh, DERs. As it relates to crypto mines, you know, these, this industry is brand new. You know, over the last five years, it has exploded in growth. In the U.S. alone, over the next few years, we'll see 10,000 plus megawatts of electricity demand from crypto mines. And obviously, it's, you know, it's catching a lot of buzz and there's some controversy around it. But make no mistake about it, they're in many ways the perfect distributed energy resource. Because unlike tier one data centers, mission critical data centers, these tier zero crypto mines, and turn off their electricity consumption instantly uh, due to the nature of how their application-specific integrated circuits work. And as a result, they can deliver immense value to grid services of all types in wholesale power markets. They can deliver instantaneous operating reserves uh, services. They can deliver capacity. They can deliver uh, price-based demand response to keep prices in markets in check. And so it's a very um, exciting new market. And our contention is 100% of these crypto mines deliver grid services. They need a software platform to deliver grid services into the markets that they operate. 
and uh, we're excited about helping them. There have been some questions about the sustainability of the crypto mining industry in general, Greg. Um, you've again, um, your company's interacted with these guys quite a bit. Could you maybe give uh, some thoughts around that? Sure. You know, it's a it's a very controversial topic, which we find kind of interesting because uh, crypto mining relative to dozens of other industries is a small fraction of electricity demand, right? Traditional data centers are 10x the amount of power consumed yeah. versus uh, crypto mine. Crypto mining, I mean, meat processing consumes more electricity than, than, than crypto mining. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it does have a lot of, um, does spark a lot of controversy. It really depends on the point of view of the, the, the person's opinion. Some people see no value in, in Bitcoin, while others see that it will displace fiat currency and, and benefit all of humanity. Our take on it is it is a, uh, an electricity consumer connected to the grid no differently than any other, except that it comes with a tremendous amount of flexibility and controllability that allows the grid to actually be healthier. One of the things that crypto mines are very sensitive to, of course, within this context of controversy is that they need to build social license, meaning they want to be good grid and community citizens. They're creating jobs. They recognize they're soaking up electricity operating margin, if you will, and they want to do it in a really socially responsible way. So you're often seeing crypto mines buy nothing but 100% renewable energy in the context of uh, social license. They are driving the demand for renewable power, increasing the amount of money spent on renewable power for those developers. And because these loads are 24-7 consumers, they're often soaking up um, they're soaking up electricity demand in the middle of the night when, for instance, a wind developer may not be getting, you know, generating any revenue for a turbine that's spinning and can't actually deliver their uh, power into the grid because consumers aren't consuming at that time of the day. So in many ways, it's very symbiotic, renewables and uh, these crypto mining loads. Interesting. The presentation you'd given, uh, you, you guys have been doing a project in New York, right? This was the aluminum, um, on the aluminum smelter. So to your point, it is, uh, you know, repositioning older assets, um, which is interesting to, to, to hear. That's right. And and it's, it, it is powered by renewable, you know, hydro renewable uh, energy while keeping jobs that uh, otherwise would have left the area in the community. Right. Okay, so let's talk about another uh, clientele, um, higher ed or universities. Um, we've been covering um, universities here, kind of looking them in, in step with um, municipalities and utilities looking for renewable resources. Uh, obviously, during the school year, these are very large users of power in general. Um, you know, we've covered from a few angles, you know, from the position of a, their older central heating and cooling plants. Uh, the CHP, how to make it more efficient. Um, and then, you know, other ways. So universities have been using uh, things like public-private partnerships to get um, private money in to build these things um, or create, um, you know, like more energy-efficient boilers, I guess is one example, uh, or creating, um, 
you know, cleaner, like LED lighting, and it's another purpose. But then, you know, other times we see universities just sourcing for renewable power and they're, they're an offtake um, like anybody else. But how do you guys usually act, interact with universities um, from, your, from your end? Yeah, universities, colleges, universities, higher ed in general uh, is a great industry for us because, as you mentioned, they're large energy consumers and they tend to have every type of distributed energy resource yeah. on their campuses. They have distributed generation. They have uh, the, the ability to deliver demand response in, in terms of load flexibility. They are investing in an energy efficiency um, projects and more and more you're seeing storage units get cited at universities. All of those distributed energy resources are behind a meter and are delivering value to the university or college, but they can deliver even more value outside of the fence, so to speak, to the broader grid, which fits in really well with the university's mission, which is to serve their student body and serve the communities in which they're located. And of course, students, the student body is incredibly tuned into the energy transition and more and more demanding that their colleges and universities participate as a grid uh, services partner. So DERs are um, right in line with the mission of higher ed. Great. And just to conclude, let's talk about the grid in general today and some of the challenges it faces. Again, I think it could lead to a, a three-hour program if we really wanted to. But, you know, what we're dealing with today is, um, you know, again, let's remove oxen from the equation and everything, an older grid, you know, and, and there's obviously behind every other renewable project, there's the need to how, how you're transmitting this, you know, and when what's doing it, what, what are the resources in place? Um, the most obvious examples for us has been with the offshore wind market, because there, that's building new transmission wires and, and, you know, the controversy that might erupt as to where you might be building that transmission. But that still doesn't um, remove what, what really is going on is that these massive solar farms are being built, these massive wind farms are being built, onshore wind probably a little bit less now, um, with the need for modern transmission. And so it's always the case of who's got the burden of the cost of upgrading these facilities, who is responsible for this. Um, and oftentimes, I think we see some of the bigger guys, you know, in the Energies and next areas of the world, they're covering the transmission as part of the project, but other times, probably not. So what do you think really needs to be done here in terms of transmission? Um, you know, where, where do we begin? Does some of these incentives in the federal infrastructure bill, which did allocate money for transmission, is it start or are we still kind of a long ways away from being where we need to be? So a lot of thoughts, but I'll, I'll let you talk. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's a whole lot to unpack there, right? I, I mean, I, I would first start with the, the, the problem that we have. And then um, there's, there's a three legs to the problem. And there's two concepts that we offer up as a, a solution that we, we've got to get right. So the, the first challenge, first fundamental issue is that we have a massive influx of intermittent renewable resources. And those things need a backstop and balancing resource, right? The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. Yeah. Uh, this is where DER shut, right? DERs are what allow us to unlock the full clean energy tr transition, you know, without which our our modern economies can't thrive. We have to couple renewable energy to DERs. They go hand in glove. So that the intermittent renewable growth poses a problem. Good news is DERs solve that problem. 
second is that our economies are electrified, right? We're converting fossil fuel powered machines into electricity powered machines like electric vehicles that wean our economies off of the, the perils of over-reliance on fossil fuels while we go through this energy transition. This electrification, however, is putting added stress from electricity demand growth on an already antiquated grid that was already in de desperate need of upgrades. So we're going to make matters worse through electrification unless we unlock the full power of these DERs at scale. And then third, we're seeing increasing impacts of climate change. Um, you know, the winter, winter storm URI brought down the, uh, the, the energy hub of the world. You know, wildfires out west, increasing strength of hurricanes and flooding. These things are converging in ways that require us to move a lot faster and make fundamental changes to modernize the grid. And so, you know, there's a long laundry list of uh, things that stakeholders want to see, but we try to boil down the solution to two fundamental needs that will unlock innovation to deliver, you know, the least expensive, most reliable and, and, and clean energy. And the first is we need standard electricity market design. So, you know, you, you brought up the topic of subsidies, like who pays for this stuff? Markets should pay for this stuff. You know, the biggest barrier to the clean energy transition, whether we're talking about offshore wind or electric vehicles or you name it, is the Byzantine and balkanized market structures that exist not only in the U.S., but all over the world, right? In the U.S., we have six separate wholesale power markets. We have two regions, the West and Southeast, that have no proper wholesale market. We have 3,300 electric utilities, 50 public utility commissions, a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and a whole lot of upset consumers who want choice and competition that are being held hostage by a regulatory construct that makes the complexities of quantum physics pale in comparison, <laughs> right? You know, you can drive from Stanford, Connecticut, through New York City to Newark, New Jersey in about an hour, and you'll have three entirely separate wholesale power markets governed by entirely different 5,000-page open access transmission tariffs that somehow we think is good for consumers, right? Yet the physics of these markets is exactly the same. The fact that the internet is a single standard worldwide is the foundation of, of countless and staggeringly beneficial innovations. And we need the same for our electricity system to have that same standard foundation if we're really gonna make a clean energy transition. Otherwise, we're just gonna be stuck in a political morass of who pays for what. Markets can solve that problem. Second thing, as you mentioned, is much like the internet, we need stronger backbones. Uh, much more high voltage transmission lines crisscrossing the US to wheel renewable power to load centers. Of course, this is a political challenge as well. And it, it's spelled out quite well in Michael Skelly's story uh, the book Superpower and the challenges he faced in trying to solve this problem. But those two things, right, standard electricity market uh, design and transmission build is what is going to modernize the grid. Great. Well, uh, Greg Dixon is proof positive that for podcasts, you should sometimes stay for the end to hear a, a thrilling conclusion. But thanks, uh, thanks for that, Greg. Really appreciate it. And, thanks uh, for having thank us. Thanks for everybody listening and uh, please tune in next time. And with that, uh, Burke out. <laughs> <laughs>